I'm Mark Peterson, and this is the FEMA Podcast. Currently, all 50 states, the District of Columbia, five territories, and 217 tribes have FEMA-approved mitigation plans. If you look across the country, uh, currently 87% of the population has a current FEMA-approved mitigation plan, which is a pretty solid number that we've maintained over several years. Um, The remaining 13%, most of them are in the process of updating their plan now. We have very few population areas that uh, do not have a mitigation plan, and generally those are going to be in very rural areas where there's not perhaps a lot of development or population. And why is that important? That is an indicator for us that there is activity actually happening, that community decision makers are actually uh, looking at their risk um, and on a five-year cycle, re-evaluating any changes to that risk or changes to the development in their community to make sure that their actions that they are taking are, in fact, the right actions. So that is an indication that communities throughout the country are taking the steps necessary to be more resilient and to build their own culture of preparedness. That was Kathy Smith, Chief of Planning and Safety Branch at FEMA's Federal Insurance and Mitigation Administration, discussing the number of communities that are actively engaged in mitigation planning. October is National Community Planning Month, a nationally recognized American Planning Association-led initiative that focuses on the importance of community planning and its impacts. This year's theme, Planning for Infrastructure That Benefits All, highlights how well-planned infrastructure projects, including roadways, transportation systems, housing, parks, and even broadband networks, strengthen communities, boost the economy, expand opportunity, and promote equitable development. So today we're joined by Kathy Smith, who is the Chief of Planning and Safety Branch at FEMA's Federal Insurance and Mitigation Administration. Kathy, thanks so much for talking with us about Community Planning Month. Thanks for having me, Mark. All right, great. So um, I guess the first thing to start off with is, Kathy, what is National Community Planning Month and, and what are the things that we focus on? Absolutely. So National Community Planning Month, um, even though it's not a FEMA-led initiative, um, it is an initiative through one of our um, longstanding partners, the American Planning Association. So for approximately 30 years, we have been working with APA to really um, spread the knowledge and awareness of hazards in the professional planning community. And when I say community planners, we're talking about people with the cross disciplines from transportation to economic development to housing to infrastructure, um, you know, basically the entire built environment of, of your community. So professional planners across the nation uh, and APA represents more than 40,000 of them. The month of October each year, the American Planning Association puts on this month and provides tools and resources to planners to uh, share with their city council members, their planning commissioners, uh, their constituencies to really showcase the importance of community planning. Yeah, but so um, specific for FEMA, though, I mean, this seems like a natural fit with all of our mitigation planning activities that we do. 
um, whether it's uh, we, you know directly with the states or with communities uh, at the regional or headquarters level. You know, what is mitigation planning? You know, in your view, when we when we look at um, you know the focus that we have on resilience and preparing the nation for catastrophic events. You know what are some of the big themes um, that you're focused on this month when it comes to mitigation planning? Mitigation planning, very simply, is the process that states and communities take to create a long-term risk reduction strategy and identify how that's going to be implemented across their community. APA actually set the stage uh, in 2019 with their theme of planning for infrastructure that benefits all. And it's wonderful in keeping with the focus areas that are emerging within FEMA right now. Certainly, uh, lifelines and infrastructure are focus areas across mitigation and response and recovery and preparedness. Uh, so the entire suite of resilience uh, mission areas um, really can benefit from that theme. And community planning um, is something that is directly or indirectly uh, part of every single part of FEMA's mission space. So mitigation planning is just one uh, very focused program area. So mitigation planning is that process that communities take to engage the public, engage their constituents, engage property owners, businesses, uh, particularly the elected officials and the different organizations that um, really direct growth and development in the community, uh, and to go through a process where the stakeholders actually uh, create an awareness of what their risks and hazards are, identify those intersections with the things that are important in their community, whether it is housing or transportation or economic development, and really come up with those decisions on how do we protect those investments? How do we protect our built environment and the people that live in our community? So mitigation plans um, are the product of that planning process, uh, but they really do just set a framework for the community moving forward. So Kathy, let's let, let's say that I am um, a, a city manager, perhaps, mm-hmm. uh, in a community that uh, is located along um, maybe a stream that sometimes floods every f- 20 years or so, every 10 mm-hmm. years. Um, but it definitely has a history of flooding and it maybe runs through the, the center of my town. Walk me through what the process of mitigation planning would be for, you know, obviously that's just the start of the potential threat. But then there are considerations that you want to have, right, as you go through that planning process. Can you walk me through what that process might be for me as a city manager? Sure. Um, I'll actually give you a real world example. Uh, some... 25 years ago, I worked with a community in Kansas, rural Kansas. And um, you think of the 90s when the farm economy was leaving these small towns and these um, county seats, basically, that were the center of economic activity. Um, But in the 80s and 90s, farm economies left these places and families um, didn't have their family farms. So this community in Kansas, um, they were facing a serious economic decline in population leaving. Hazards was not their driver to actually look at the flood risk in their community. 
But as they were trying to determine how do we attract people back to our town? How do we boost our economy when our historical economy is gone? And what they discovered, one of the reasons they couldn't attract anybody to fill in their empty storefronts downtown um, was their flooding problem, precisely as you described. It was not every year, but it was frequent enough. And uh, people moving in saw their property located near enough to a floodplain on the map um, that it was too high a cost. So they... Um, actually uh, incorporated um, floodplain management and flooding and hazards into their comprehensive plan. This predates the mitigation plan requirements, but they incorporated it into their comprehensive plan and even became a CRS community for the first time. Community rating system. Community rating system, community for the first time. Um, well, and that provides for lower cost insurance, right? Throughout the absolutely, community. Absolutely, right, which then gets... Uh, relayed onto the actual business owners that moved into the town. Wow. So it's an example. Again, the federal requirements didn't drive it. It was a community decision. But the connection between what was the highest priority to that city manager and what was driving some of the decisions of the property owners or the business owners, um, there was a direct relationship. And so they made a lot of decisions to invest in flood protection in their community that they might not have otherwise made. I mean, that's a that's a great example. And I think it's probably something that plays out across the country, right? You know, you have a, a changing economy. Um, you potentially have certain, you know, natural hazards that uh, might affect the economy. You know, I mean... There, with so many threats and hazards out there, you know, facing communities throughout the nation, can we really reduce the effects of disasters, you know, just through planning? Absolutely. Yes. I think uh, the, the plan is a point in time. It is a document that is produced, but there is a lot leading up to the plan and a lot happening after the plan is completed. The planning process uh, itself does create a lot of networking and relationship building as well as the awareness. So just that community engagement and stakeholder uh, 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 engagement is a critical part and a critical outcome of the planning process. Once the plan is actually adopted and what the community does with it moving forward is the next layer and it sets a decision framework. So city council members, planning commissioners um, really have a clear path for how they're going to reduce risk in their communities and to actually identify with scarce resources, frankly, at every community level, because frankly, you know, every community and state uh, will tell you there's very little money going toward this um, effort. Toward the planning effort. Toward not just the planning mm -hmm. effort, but just toward mitigation in general. Um, most, uh, many communities actually uh, invest federal dollars when disasters happen. And that's often the only funding that they have to really tap into for mitigation dollars. But when they look across the investments, uh, across housing, economic development, transportation, et cetera, and really identify where they need to protect their investments, that's where the real magic happens. And uh, the stakeholders can really look at what they're investing in to make sure that they actually are including hazards and risk reduction into considering their investments as well. Yeah, I mean, when we look at you know mitigation projects throughout the nation, 
nation. Um, I, I am I wrong in thinking that there is maybe um, a tilt towards flooding uh, as a risk more than say other uh, potential hazards? Well, if you look at the disaster costs, yeah, absolutely. I think um, I. I think my statistics might be a little old, but 60% of federal investments uh, was what I last saw. I don't know how much that's changed. Um, but certainly it depends geographically on where you're sitting. Um, certainly coastal, uh, you've got hurricanes. Um, uh, on the other coast, you have tsunamis. Uh, you get into mountainous areas, and frankly, wildfire takes takes the, the lead in terms of what the risk is. Um, uh, you're out on the, the west uh the West, and you're looking at earthquakes um, as a as a big driver of those decisions. Um, but certainly, I think from the vantage point of uh, of FEMA and the federal investment, certainly flood gets uh, a lot of attention. What's interesting to me is that um, while we plan for certain hazards and threats, what's interesting about this month of October has been the focus on infrastructure and sort of it seems to me sort of changing the mindset of those mitigation projects and the planning for potential mitigation projects away from just the acts, not that they aren't important, but acquisition and demolition of flood, potentially flood prone homes, uh, those types of planning and looking more towards the infrastructure that may be at risk, Mm -hmm. right? So, uh, you know, can you talk me through some of those infrastructure areas that we want to focus on? I'll give a a recent example. Um, so in 2019, Congress appropriated funding for the High Hazard Potential Dams Rehabilitation Grant Program. It's a mouthful. Uh, but essentially, it is uh, repair, removal, or re- re- rehabilitation of dams that have a high risk. Um, high risk meaning population downstream uh, if, if the dam should fail. So The High Hazard Potential Dam Program uh, requires a mitigation plan in order to be eligible for those grants, and the mitigation plan has to address all dam risks. Um, Much of our approach from an all-hazards perspective has not directed communities to identify any one particular risk in their community. It is community-driven. They identify their hazards, they identify their risks and vulnerabilities. As a result of this new grant program, we have addressed dams very specifically in our mitigation plan requirements. Mm -hmm. And it's exciting because it is infrastructure um, and dams themselves are not a hazard, but dam failure can create a hazard. So it's an important construct where we uh, get to get to put together the state dam safety offices and the state has mitigation offices. And frankly, this year, for the first time, many of them have never spoken before. Um, so it, it creates a new, uh, a new opportunity to address um, a part of a community that hasn't really been served specifically through a lot of our initiatives. You know, that's a that's an example of, you know, kind of a specific hazard. But mm-hmm. are there other specific hazards that we've sort of taken a look at in sort of our emphasis with mitigation planning? I'm thinking about maybe areas of the country that are uh, maybe more prone to high high wind mm-hmm. and maybe uh, have a considerable number of rural electric co-ops um, that sort of run their power generation and power distribution. Are, do we look at 
ways of um, or helping communities look at ways to plan for the mitigation of those? Um, we actually have a lot of rural electric cooperatives who have developed hazard mitigation plans for themselves. Um, certainly traditional jurisdictions like counties and cities have mitigation plans, uh, but we have a lot of quasi-governmental or even nonprofit organizations that have taken it on themselves because whether they have a lot of assets, obviously, or infrastructure that um, is a large investment that they want to protect, uh, or they have an economic interest, frankly, that they want to protect. Other uh, types of infrastructure or lifelines where we have had uh, still have a lot of mitigation plans that exist. We have hospitals, so hospital systems. We have school districts. Um, a lot of universities have hazard mitigation plans because they have large campuses and large uh, amounts of assets. Um, we, as mentioned, we have the rural electric cooperatives. We have fire districts, wastewater treatment districts, uh, water supply districts. Um, so a lot of these lifeline, um, uh, quasi-governmental and nonprofit organizations, not just your traditional communities, that have seen the value of mitigation planning. Um, I think an incentive certainly is that there are federal dollars attached to the mitigation plan requirement. Well, well, just in the list of um, entities that you just described that um, potentially be, would be looking at or engaging in mitigation planning, um, all, um, or if not all, most um, are potentially eligible for FEMA's public assistance program, potentially other federal dollars. And uh, with a lot of those programs is the requirement for a mitigation plan, right? So why is it important, aside from just the legislative requirement that you have a uh, hazard mitigation plan, you know, why is it important to consider the mitigation planning as a, as, um, as a requirement for those federal dollars? Um, certainly when mitigation planning was made a requirement in 2000, there was a fiscal interest in terms of making sure that communities are prepared when the funding becomes available. Um, a lot of the decision-making on what types of projects could a community apply for, um, what types of funding are available to a community or a property owner as a match, for example. And a lot of that pre-thinking didn't necessarily um, exist before 2000 when Congress created this mitigation plan requirement. So certainly there was a, a federal interest in, in, in helping communities think through that decision flow in advance of funding becoming available. So that's certainly one um, perspective on the importance of the mitigation plan requirement, at least from how FEMA funds So that plans. would sort of speed the process of actually getting mitigation projects executed and, and moving forward, right? Right. The plans themselves are long-term. They're not short-term fixes. They're not looking at the next federal funding cycle. They are looking at how the community grows and develops and looking across the built environment and the infrastructure and the long-term planning that comes within the community. Yeah, and that really ties in... Uh well to a previous uh, episodes that we episode that we did with uh, Angie Gladwell on the national mitigation investment strategy where you know while the community may be considering those plans and seeking all different types of funding that might lead them towards you know 
uh, an effective mitigation um, an effective mitigation project. Um, likewise, the nation's really engaged in uh, looking at all of those types of funding, all of those different practices that can be brought in as one holistic strategy, right? Absolutely, yeah. The ENMIS is pretty exciting because for nearly 20 years, we have been working with states, local, and tribal communities to develop their plans, but we haven't had a national plan. So the ENMIS, in essence, is achieving the same type of outcome and identifying specific strategies. And right now, we are working across organizations, across other federal agencies to develop uh, implementation plans around the ENMIS, around the mitigation investment strategy. So it's an exciting opportunity and really fits very well with the type of work that mitigation planning strives to achieve. All right. Well, so, you know, once you sort of have that plan and, um, and it's been approved by the jurisdiction, you know, what then? What's the next um, step for sort of implementation, I guess, uh, for communities? So there is an implementation plan in every mitigation plan that identifies the, the actions the community is committing to take um, as uh, a requirement communities have to adopt these plans. Um, we frequently see signatures from uh, from the mayor, for example. Um, they're adopting these strategies as a commitment to action. Um, the plans themselves will include federal funding opportunities, um, but the plans, the communities must look at all potential resources. Um, you know, Kathy, we, we talked a lot about the community aspect of this, but inherent in a community are people, right? And so I think there's probably a considerable amount of individuals out there that are interested in, you know, sort of the changing environment in which we live in and the changing threats that, you know, face their communities after development or just, you know, sort of changing um, topography. Um, and, and they may want to know what is the mitigation plan in their community or mm -hmm. county. Um, so how, how is it that they can find that? Where would they go? Absolutely. So on FEMA.gov, uh, if you uh, look on the FEMA.gov page, we actually have a searchable map that will show whether a community has a mitigation plan or not. Um, I recommend Googling. <laughs> obviously, uh, the, or searching the internet for uh, the name of your town mitigation plan. Um, frankly, most communities have sophisticated enough websites that they do post their public-facing documents online. Um, but certainly, if you want to go to the FEMA.gov uh, website, we do have the searchable map that will show if, in fact, any community across the country has a plan. We welcome your comments and suggestions on this and future episodes. Help us to improve the podcast by rating us and leaving a comment. If you have ideas for future topics, send us an email at fema-podcast at fema.dhs.gov. If you'd like to learn more about this episode or other topics, visit fema.gov slash podcast. Podcast.